Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard, back again. Thank you very much for joining us, lovely listener. I'm not going to start stating the number of episodes that we've done because I've done a fair few already, but I should start stating the number I've done, number I've done with my partner in crime today, Emma Leonis Hughes. Ems, you all right? I'm good, thank you, Chris. Yeah, you? Yeah, we should start counting, shouldn't we? We That should. would involve one of us having to go back and count every single episode that we were in. I'm going to nominate you to do that, if that's all right. Okay, done. You're not, you're not <laughs> going to do it, are you? I'm just going to make it up and guess. 25, yeah. something yeah. like that? It must be 25-ish. Fine, yeah. We'll start at 25 and see if the listeners, we'll do, maybe we'll do a prize for the listeners. If you can get the actual number, not that we'll check, but if you can get the actual number of podcasts that Emma and I have done to, with each other, then there'll be some sort of lace merch in it for you or something like that. But I'm prattling on and what I want to do is bring in our, ne- our guest for today because he's going to talk to us about a topic which I think is going to resonate with a lot of our HR professionals here. And the topic is around why employers are struggling to recruit and retain Gen Z workers. Now, not being a Gen Z worker, starting to show my age as a tail end of millennial, this is something that I'm certainly interested in. But let's get our guest in so we can have a chat and pick his brains. And it's Steve Rothberg, who's the founder and chief visionary officer at College Recruiter. So, Steve, how are you, sir? I am quite well today. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Emma. Are you going to volunteer to uh, go back through all of our podcasts and see how many that Emma and I featured in? So already done. It's the number is twenty eight, and uh, yes, you do owe me a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And he's no one's going to hold him to that as well. So we're, I'm just going to have to buy him a pint next time we're in. But let's talk about you, and let's talk about College Recruiter before we actually go into our main topic. So, Steve, can you just tell our wonderful listeners a little bit about yourself and the business that you founded and what you guys do? Yeah, no sweat. So I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada. For um, anybody who knows Canadian geography, it is located literally right in the middle of the country. Fun little factoid, Winnipeg is the coldest city in the world that has more than half a million residents in it. Not so unrelated to that fact was that I wanted to move out of there from the time that I sort of realized that there were options. Winnipeg's a great place to be about nine months of the year, but three months of the year, it's challenging. So I moved to Minneapolis. Minnesota, which I still live here today, three decades later. And I founded the company that College Recruiter grew out of in 1991. So I came here, went to grad school, to law school, graduated after the three years. And I was in my first year working as a lawyer and basically decided that I wanted to get out of law to enjoy my life, which was a really good decision. So law school was awesome for the training, but I didn't want to stay in the practice of law forever. Initially, what the company was doing was just a very small micro company. Sometimes it was just me. Sometimes there were just a few of us. But for a few years, we were doing things like publishing maps of college and university campuses. And we would sell advertising around the borders of those to local restaurants, retailers, apartment companies, and some employers. A few years later, in 94, we created an employment magazine called College Recruiter. And the 
magazine we provided for free to the college and university career service offices. They then provided them for free to the graduating students. And our revenues were generated in pretty much the same manner as with the maps. Local businesses would advertise with us for the magazine. They were looking for students to work part-time or as interns or in co-op, apprenticeship, whatever kinds of positions, or the graduates for full-time entry-level positions. Then this thing called the internet came along. And in 96, we created the very first version of our website, which we thought was the cat's meow. You could search either by occupational field, so by, say, engineering, or by location, but not by both. There was no database. It was just static HTML. So you click on engineering, you'd see all the engineering jobs. You'd click on Ohio, you'd see all the jobs in Ohio, but you couldn't really narrow it down. It sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, there were probably about 200 job boards globally. Of the Fortune 500, only 50 had websites. And of those 50, only five had career sections, and none of those had searchable databases. None of them had what we would now call an ATS. And so the typical employer website early on was usually a page that said something to the effect of, we're always looking for good people in bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point kinds of areas. If you're interested, mail or fax your resume to this address. And it was a bit of a different era. Today, College Recruiter is global. We have at any given time, about 2 million part-time, seasonal, internship, apprenticeship, and what we call entry-level jobs, those that require zero to three years of experience. We're still English only, but that's going to change next year. We're going to add multi-language support next year. And we help, over the course of a year, about 7 million candidates find, hopefully, what are great new jobs. Wow, that's amazing, Steve. And I was just sort of reflecting, going, technology's come on so much. And obviously with Gen Zs being born in the mid-90s to early 2000s, it's not me either, Chris making me feel very old now as well. Thank you. <laughs> um, they're obviously digital natives. So mm -hmm. sort of really interested in your perspective, Steve, on maybe some of the trends that you're seeing and how kind of graduates and college students are now searching for that first role possibly coming out of that, you know, education setting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely digital native. And it's not talked about that much, but I would go a little bit further than that. They're also mobile first. So my wife and I, we just celebrated our 29th anniversary, which is kind of shocking that she stayed with me that long. But we have three adult kids. The oldest is at the very youngest end of the millennial range, 27. Then when there's one that's sort of right on the border of millennial and what we in America would call Gen Z, what Canadians and British would call Gen Z, Zs. And Zoomer is another term that I'm starting to hear more of. People go like Zoomer, what the heck is a Zoomer? It's like, oh, Gen Z. Oh, okay, fine, fine. Well, I could just, just talk Gen Z. But anyway, and then our youngest is 22 and very solidly Gen Z in just her outlook, the kinds of jobs, how she uses the internet, and I would say just how she looks at the world. So a big difference between the oldest, 27, and youngest, 22. The oldest remembers 9-11. The oldest remembers 
a time when the US, the UK, and most other Western countries were not at war. For the youngest, there's no memory of the world before 9-11. She has grown up her entire life at war and sometimes more hotter than others. But to her, this is the new normal. The other thing that's really different is that the oldest remembers dial-up. The oldest remembers me getting our family's first smartphone. The oldest remembers going and seeing lines of people outside of electronic stores when the first iPhones were on sale, which for all practical purposes was the first mobile device that you could really use the internet well with. And the youngest doesn't remember any of that. When you talk to her about the squealing of the modem and dial up and pages that would take forever to load and why it was important for sites to have minimal graphics, all of that is you might as well be talking about the Stone Age. It's prehistoric. So digital natives like our youngest, this stuff isn't technology. Using a mobile device to find a job is normal and natural and expected. But just five years older, her oldest doesn't take that for granted. He'll look at a mobile device and go to an employer's website and be pleasantly surprised when he can apply to a job. He's not expecting it. He's ex actually expecting the opposite. Another difference that I see with the youngest of millennials versus the Zoomers, we can call them, is that the youngest of the millennials are more like me as a Gen Xer, where we think of the internet as a place to go. It's a destination. You actually sit down at a desk, you turn on your computer, you load your browser, you go to a website. Zoomers tend to think of the internet like we think of air. It's there and you should never have to think about it. You are surprised when it's not there. You expect there always to be air. And it's very much the same with Zoomers. The thought of an employer telling you what device you need to use, when you can jump on YouTube to refresh yourself or post a TikTok video or engage in a chat with a colleague that maybe is work-related, maybe isn't, is just bewildering to them. It would be like telling a baby boomer that, no, you can't go and have a smoke for a couple of times a day. It's like, of course I can't. That's just what we do. It's part of my daily routine. So somehow baby boomer managers are okay with people taking a couple of 15 minute breaks to go for a smoke, but they're not okay with a Zoomer watching a 10 second TikTok video. And there are just some generational differences like that. Some people People would call it generational. I struggle to think of whether that's actually a generational difference or just an age appropriate difference. When I was 22, I did a lot of the same stupid things that my daughter will do and a lot of the smart things that she'll do. But I'm 56. So for me to do things like a 22 year old is doing, that would be pretty creepy. I was just thinking about some of the examples that you were giving there. I'm interested to get your view on this, Steve, because I wrote down the dial up bit that you mentioned. Do you think that means that the Gen Zers are just less tolerant. They want things quicker and faster and now, as opposed to the millennials. One of the questions I, I had was, why is it so different? Why is that person, that Gen Z, are so different to me? I still feel young. I use a mobile. I consider myself, do I consider myself mobile first? I know, probably not actually, but I'm kind of thinking, is it the tolerance thing that kind of separates us? I think it's just what they consider to be technology. So something that you've always had is not technology. So my parents' generation, people in their 80s, by and large, they had landlines. 
from their earliest time, but their parents definitely did not. So like my grandparents who would be 110 or so now, if they were, if they were still alive, they would look at a landline as being technology. They wouldn't expect it even in the workforce. It just never would have been native to them. My parents' generation, things like fax machines, would always be technology to them because they didn't grow up with that. Even electronic typewriters to somebody in their 80s would be technology. To somebody of my generation, computers are not technology, but personal computers are because they came in the 80s. And then the Gen Zers and stuff, then things like mobile devices, it kind of depends on exactly how old they are, maybe where they grew up. In a country like the UK or the US, far more likely that they would have been surrounded by smartphones from the earliest age. So I don't think it's an entitlement, like a negative thing that they expect fast internet, fast loading web pages. I think it's that it should be that way. That's the technology has long existed that it should be that way. It's really interesting. And as you were just talking there about tech, it popped into my head, obviously, what we do at Lace Partners, we're a HR tech specialist, agnostic business that looks at all types of best of breed or the enterprise technology. What I was just thinking about there is as a millennial that would join a business and be told you get access to this kind of technology that will help you with your job, my immediate response is, well, that's brilliant. That's going to help me. That's going to help me become more productive. That's a really tick in the box for my new employer that I'm joining. But is there a case, and I'm just interested to get your thoughts, and then actually maybe your thoughts as well, Em's on this as well. Your thoughts, Steve, and then your thoughts, Emma, as well, is if you're that Gen Zer, are you going into that same business that I'm going into and going, well, this is obvious. You should have all of this stuff anyway. Yes, absolutely. And I would even back up the timeline a little bit right to the very first point of contact. So a Gen Zer, if you send them to an applicant tracking system or some other kind of page where they're applying and you're asking them a whole bunch of questions that are only relevant after the point of interview or even just that point where you're going to select them for an interview, then they're going to be turned off. So a millennial and especially somebody like me, a Gen Xer or a boomer, we're not going to think as badly about that because that hiring process has been sort of in existence and it's been kind of normal. We've learned to tolerate that. For us, we cut you some slack because being able to apply online is a huge improvement to us. And so if you're asking some questions that it's like, why are they asking me this now? It's still an improvement over the process that we would have had 20 years ago. For a Zoomer, they didn't have that process 20 years ago. They never filled out a paper application. And if they're just coming out of college or university, this is probably the first professional job they've ever applied to. And so just interacting with an ATS or something along some technology like that is probably the first time. If you put them through an online assessment and you're transparent and you share the results and you show them why they're a good fit, why they're not a good fit. You're candid about why you're using the assessment, how you're using the assessment. You walk them through the process, what their expectations should be. You should hear back in five days on this, and then it's 15 days for that and whatever. Your career mobility, if you join us in this role, 
these are the normal paths that you'll follow. And it normally is six months or two years or never. And just be candid and transparent about that. Zoomers expect that. And when you don't offer that, they see it and it turns them off. They've come of age in a labor market that is been really hot. Yes, we had all the problems with COVID, but they knew that that was temporary. Before COVID, the labor market was hot. And then we had this period measured in months where in most sectors, it was anything but. And then it's kind of returned to that really hot environment. So their working age experience is that they're in demand that they don't have to look hard for jobs. Jobs need to look hard for them. And that creates a different expectation. So one thing, and I'm sure that you found this at Lace Partners, that can be hard for somebody older to understand is that people don't take jobs anymore simply because you pay them. That's expected fair and equitable pay for the talent they have is expected. And that can be very different than fair and equitable pay for the role they have. So if you're hiring a cook, that person is comparing your rate of pay with that at an Amazon warehouse. So if you're paying that cook the same as all of the other cooks in the neighborhood, and that's a third less than what Amazon is paying in a warehouse, your competitor for that talent is not the restaurant three doors down from you. It's Amazon. So your pay has to be what Amazon is going to pay. Your process has to be the process that Amazon follows. So they expect to be able to apply quickly. If they're assessed and they understand why and how that fits into the picture, they're cool with that. It's not weird to them. And they want a map for how long that's going to take. And God help you if you say it's going to take us two weeks after interviewing to decide whether we want to hire you because somebody early in their career in that two weeks, they can have four or five other job offers and they can start 10 days before you've even decided whether to hire them. And why would somebody wait around for the small possibility that you're going to extend an offer to them when they have an offer and they can start tomorrow? They'd be stupid to wait. Now, picking up on some of the things you, you've said there, Steve, just reflecting on kind of the whole premises podcast, and the challenge question around why are employers struggling to recruit and retain Gen Z or Zoomers, Gen Z workers? <laughs> um, so hey, it's your podcast. We're going with Z. I'm happy to do all of those. <laughs> we've talked a little bit from what you've just said there about the first interaction you have thereon is all about having visibility of information, that transparency. So you know what mm. to expect. You can clearly see the culture. There's also something, as you've said, around, you know, that fair pay for the talent that's expected in the role. But what about some other things like, I don't know, benefits, for example, or, mm. you know, a sense of purpose? Because one survey that mm -hmm. I was reading said, you know, nearly half of respondents made choices on their career paths and potential employers they'd like to work on based on the employer's social purpose so they have that connection what are your thoughts on the other components i guess of the value proposition yeah one of the reasons why i love the gen z so much is that they do care so much about the mission of the organization the purpose they want to work for an organization that is going to make the world a better place now, that doesn't mean that you have to be feeding the hungry. That doesn't mean that you have to be cleaning up pollution sites. That doesn't mean that you have to be bringing North and South Korea together and exchanging daffodils. But it does mean things like, okay, we are a plumbing company. How does that make people's lives better, right? We're not just selling toilets, right? We're selling an improved lifestyle, a better 
place to do your business. I mean, just figure out what it is about your business that brings value to your customers, to your vendors, to your partners, to your employees, and be really explicit about that. People want purpose. They want to understand how their job fits into that. If I go to work for your advertising agency as a bookkeeper, how does that make the advertising agency better function? And how does that advertising agency bring value to the world? And it's a easier said than done for a lot of organizations. Hint, you might need a consultant to help you with that. <laughs> so purpose is definitely a big deal. And quite frankly, I don't think it's just a big deal to Zoomers. I think it's also become a bigger deal to those of us who are older. We've learned that, you know what, we don't have to just be employed in a field that we are good at. We can also be employed in a field that we care about, that interests us. So I think the standards for employees have gone up. Some employers embrace that and they've become really good at delivering that authentically and communicating that, not just the BS lip service, we're family friendly. I defy you to find any organization in the world that would promote the fact that it's family unfriendly. I mean, what does that really mean? It's just nonsense that goes onto a web page that doesn't mean anything and candidates can smell that inauthentic language from a mile away and it turns them off. If you've got a very rigid, militaristic, top-down environment, own it because some candidates thrive in that environment. They don't want to be using critical thinking skills. They want to show up, be told what to do, do their job, go home. And those are the ones you want. On the other hand, if you've got a very loosey-goosey, nobody has a job title, we all kind of sit around and sing kumbaya all day, own it. You don't want those people who need you know, a rigid work environment even looking at your jobs. So communication Authentic communication is so much more important than it was even 10 years ago. And have you seen sort of any particular trends around the types of benefits or perks, maybe, mm. that college graduates, universities, um, you know, people at university are looking for? Because you know, historically, pensions is a big thing. You know, some of us want to plan ahead. Some of us at that age maybe aren't thinking, you know, 30 years from now, they're yeah. thinking right now I'm coming out with a massive debt. I want flexibility. So just interested to see what you know you're seeing, really. Yeah, thank you for reminding me about the other part of your question. My apologies for <laughs> not getting right. the benefits one. <laughs> I think we're probably on the same page there. Pensions, what you know, in the US, we typically call them 401ks. That's the section of the tax code that allows you to save money tax-free. Canada, where I grew up, they typically are called like RRSPs. I mean, most Western countries have some form of that, whether it's employer provided or employee provided or a combination of the two. Typical 20-year-old could care less because they're 50 years away from needing that. They don't even think the world's going to be around in 50 years. Why would they want to save for retirement? <laughs> what they want to do right now is they want to have a flat that's not infested by cockroaches. They want to be able to buy groceries occasionally if they need some kind of prescription med. And let's be honest, not very many 20-year-olds need very many prescription meds. So that's not as big of a deal for them. So 
50, 60 year olds who are designing these benefit plans and writing the bullet points, the job posting ads and spending all of their time saying, look at the great benefits that we have for people who are approaching retirement. I don't care if I'm a Zoomer. What I want to see is ability to work from home. I want to be able to see flexible work environment. I want to be able to see things like, can I buy or sell, I think what you would call leave, what we would call vacation days, you know, maybe three weeks is standard. If I want to take an extra week, can I do that? How do I do that? Do I just take that unpaid? Do I give up something else? There are organizations out there now that will allow employers to design like a flexible package. So Emma might say, you know what, I would rather have an extra week of leave. And Chris might say, you know what, the last thing I want to do is go sit on a beach. I would rather have more pay because I've got my eye on a really cool motorcycle, right? Both of you should be able to do that. And so there are companies out there that facilitate that and are making it a lot easier. And employers that are able to deliver different benefit packages to different employees, I think are going to win. Employers that are very rigid about you must work remotely 100% of the time or you must work in person 100% of the time, they are cutting out a portion of the labor market. And that might be okay. Like college recruiter, we've been fully remote since 1997. If somebody came to us and said, I am the perfect match, but I need to work in an office, we would be saying you're not a good fit. And we know that we are just going to lose that person. And that's okay because there's a huge other portion of the market where people are like, no, I want to work fully remote. And so that's great. So also I see employers misleading candidates about their benefit packages. And that lack of candor and sometimes just outright dishonesty is something that they might have been able to get away with 20 or 30 years ago. But since the dawning of Glassdoor, you just can't. It's going to be on the Internet that the employer told me that the unlimited vacation policy meant that if I wanted to go work in Spain and then take every Friday off that I could do that. But as soon as I started, my manager said, no, that is just going to kill you. So don't say it unless you can back it up. I think that point about the referral side is really, really important. I've read a blog recently, which I can't remember where the stats came from, but it said, here are the top ways Gen Z prefer to find jobs. 62% of them say they prioritize referrals over everything else. So Mm -hmm. that glass door kind of approach is really, really important. Listen, we are almost out of time for today's Mm -hmm. podcast. I cannot believe that 30 minutes has gone by that quickly. I do want to ask one question, though, before we exit, which is the let's just say in five years time, we're all sitting down in our respective offices in our homes right now, having this same conversation. We've decided to do a five years on. Where are we at now? From your perspective, Steve, what do you think is different? What's going to be different? What what do you think our conversation is going to be in five years time? Fundamentally, no major differences, but I do think there's one big difference that I'm super excited about, and that is finally we're seeing the adoption of scientifically validated online assessments where people are being assessed in a a reasonable period of time, maybe 20 minutes for their ability to do the job rather than what school did you go to? What was your major? What was the job title that you had in your previous three roles? Those online assessments that are based upon the productivity, not upon do you like the color red and other nonsense like that, those are 
opening up the labor pool dramatically. You've got people who never went to college or university now qualified for roles that used to be reserved to those with a college or university degree. That's greatly improving the diversity, not just in terms of gender and skin color, but also people with disabilities that might find it very hard to commute to a university and attend classes. And people who come from a disadvantaged socioeconomic group, maybe your parents were very low income earners and they didn't have the money to send you and you had to go to work when you were 17. Those sorts of people add to the diversity of the workforce just as much as those with different skin colors, genders, et cetera. They bring a different way of thinking and approaching problems. They improve your productivity. Where I've really been annoyed by assessments for a long, long time is that they've been much more Myers-Briggs, things that are irrelevant to are you qualified to do this job? Are you going to be able to do this job well? Where now you're seeing a small number of assessment companies that can actually show you the candidates that go through this assessment that rank well two years later, they are your top performers. That's the kind of question. If a vendor comes to you and says, well, it stands to reason that somebody who's an extrovert would do well in this job, I would just slam that door in their face. So yeah. five years from now, I hope... Every employer for every role is using a scientifically validated assessment. That would be a better world to be in, certainly. Um, and we've seen some evidence of that. I put a LinkedIn message out, which Emma, obviously I tagged you in, about a certain big four that shall remain nameless suddenly championing itself because they've decided that they don't want to restrict people by saying you can only have people who have had two one degrees in the UK. Cough, cough. You should have been doing that years ago, guys. Last horse crosses the finish line. Anyway, on that note, I am going to wrap up today's podcast. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a delight to have you on. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you, Emma. Ems, thanks as always for being my partner in crime. Anytime, Chris. Look forward to pod 29. Yes, pod 29, <laughs> as Steve stated. And when he's in the UK, uh, there is a pint with his name on it. Unless, of course, I get one of my team to actually go back and listen to see how many times Emma and I have been <laughs> featured to be confirmed. But from all three of us, thank you very much for listening to the HR on the Offensive podcast. You can, of course, get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are pretty much everywhere from the audio format. If you want to see the Lace back catalogue, of course, it's www.lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. We thank you for joining us and we hope you'll join us next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. Bye-bye.